Now, I'm very happy to be here. Uh, good memories of when Julie was on the MCC board and I would see her at, at meetings there. Um, let me just tell you a little more about my journey. I spent 13 years with MCC in the Washington office. And during those years, I uh, often would travel to the Middle East because I was following uh, very closely US, US policy and its impact on the Middle East. Uh, so I traveled there frequently. And then, as Julie said, we had the privilege of living in the region for six years during the, the Arab Spring and uh, had opportunity to travel often to places like Gaza uh, into Iran, and to meet just uh, amazing people, uh, many of whom are doing uh, extraordinary work in trying to build peaceful communities in a diff difficult part of the world. Um, I've titled this, actually, Christians in the Holy Land, and I want to be clear that uh, MCC's work in the Middle East is focused not just on Christians, but uh, on, with Muslim communities and Jewish communities as well. But um, in particular, in 2009, um, Palestinian Christians wrote a document called Kairos Palestine. And in that document, they made a very strong appeal for Christians in the West to understand their situation and their story. And so that's why MCC has asked me to do a series of conversations around the church uh, just talking a bit about the situation for Palestinian Christians, sharing some of their stories, uh, their perspectives, uh, and, um, and then having a time of, of conversation. And so I'm not expecting that everything that Palestinian Christians say that you might uh, necessarily agree with, uh, but it's uh, a chance to hear a story from another part of the body of Christ. And uh, I appreciate the chance to do this. The um, Christian population in uh, the West Bank in Gaza uh, represents 1.2% of the population, so a very small portion of people living in uh, the Palestinian territories are Christian. Uh, it is a concern to church leaders because that number used to be closer to 30% uh, just 50 years ago, so the Christian community has dwindled significantly. Uh, imagine yourself uh, if uh, in your congregation, uh, when you were studying a particular gospel story, if you were able to go to the site of that story uh, for the service and what the impact of that, that would be. This uh, is in Capernaum. Uh, it's a synagogue built over the ruins of the synagogue that was there when Jesus spent uh, a lot of his ministry time in Capernaum. It's on the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum is a small village. Um, there were five of the disciples that uh, Jesus had that were from this village. Uh, Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Matthew were all from here, and uh, Jesus called uh, four of them from along the sea seashore. But a lot of, uh, if you read the Gospels, um, many, many of the miracles that Jesus performed were in this little village of Capernaum. Um, the, the, the uh, lame man that was let down through the roof, uh, the healing of Peter's um, mother-in-law, uh, Jairus' daughter, um, lots of the teachings of Jesus at this very synagogue is where Jesus gave the teaching on I am the bread of life, that long discourse in John 6. And when you get to the end of that, 
it says, and Jesus gave this teaching when he was at the synagogue in Capernaum. So that's where this is. Um, this is uh, what Capernaum looks like. Just over the back of those trees uh, is the Sea of Galilee, and the mountains behind them would be uh, in the Golan Heights. But this was what the, the houses in that village looked like at the time. It was a very small fishing village, and when Jesus was, um, was more or less uh, unwelcomed in his hometown of Nazareth, Capernaum became his, uh, his adopted hometown. And so just watch for that as you read the Gospels, how many things happened in this little village. Or um, just outside of Capernaum is the Mount of Beatitudes, where it's believed that Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and we have many learning tours that come to the region, and usually they like to go to this site to read at least the first part of the, the book of Matthew, the Beatitudes. You can see in the background, uh, maybe not well, but the Sea of Galilee is on the horizon there. Moving uh, to Bethlehem, uh, where Elizabeth has spent time, this is a children's choir that is uh, over it, the church that's built over the site of the cave where it's believed that Jesus was born. And in the fourth century, Constantine sent his mother uh, on a mission to the Middle East after he made Christianity the state religion. He wanted to be sure to preserve the historic sites. And so she went and had churches built over the sites of the, the birth and the, the um, crucifixion, the tomb. Uh, many of the sites had churches built over them. So this church was built in the fourth century. And that's what the church looks like from the outside. Uh, you haven't been there during the snow, but it does snow. Uh, it does snow in Bethlehem in the winter. Uh, and um, candles are a huge part of the worship experience in the Middle East. They, they pay in Eastern religions, uh, in Eastern forms of Christianity, a lot more attention to the senses uh, and the arts than what we have historically. I think that's changing more now. <clears throat> Christians in the, in the Middle East often will reenact certain uh, gospel stories. On Palm Sunday, uh, Christians gather on the backside of the Mount of Olives, and they uh, were at the site where Jesus uh, got the colt that he rode into Jerusalem, and they follow those footsteps uh, up the backside of the Mount of Olives, down through the Garden of Gethsemane, through the Kidron Valley, and up into Jerusalem. And it's a marvelous experience. We had the joy of being part of this procession several years. Uh, Christians from around the world come. They sing, their, uh, they sing Easter hymns um, in their own language. And so you can, can just hear different languages passing by as you uh, walk in this, in this procession. And the, the Palestinian Christians, because they are the local Christians, uh, they lead that procession. Uh, so here... They are going down uh, the Mount of Olives, uh, getting ready to get into what was the Garden of Gethsemane, and then head up into Jerusalem. And um, this, uh, is this oh, is the Dome of the Rock. Uh, that uh, is, a, is a holy Muslim site at this point. At one point, it was the site of the temple. And it is built over a large rock 
that is believed to be the, the rock where Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac. Uh, in the Old Testament, it was called Mount Moriah. And so that became then the temple area um, centuries later. One of the things that is very interesting about the uh, procession on Palm Sunday is that it's very difficult for Christians to get permits to go to Jerusalem. Uh, living in the West Bank, uh, their travel, their movement is quite restricted. And so they need to get a permit from the Israeli government to be able to travel to Jerusalem. So it's a, it's a special occasion for those Christians who are granted permits. And uh, you will see they tend to travel uh, by their village in this procession. This group is a group from Beit Jala, which uh, is just uh, right beside Bethlehem. And always their banners will identify their, their village and how far their village is from Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem is kind of the place that you measure everything from. And here, um, waving palm branches, they are getting ready to go in the Lion's Gate into the old city. Uh, Lion's Gate is also known as St. Stephen's Gate because uh, it is on this site where these uh, people are standing that Stephen was stoned. When he, if you read in Acts 8, it says they took him outside the city and they stoned him. Then uh, later during Holy Week, the Christians who are able will trace the steps of uh, walking from uh, the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. So again, you can just imagine what it would be like if you were a Christian living in that region to be able to, uh, to be part of those stories in such a very real way. Uh, so here they are going through uh, the old, uh, old city of Jerusalem, carrying a cross and heading out uh, through the gate and going down the hill into the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, when you get to the Garden of Gethsemane, there are olive trees still over the site um, where Jesus would have gone to pray. Uh, these trees are about 14 or 1500 years old. So they would not have been there to hear the prayers of Jesus, but not too long after that. Uh, just amazingly resilient trees. And again, candles. Uh, this is uh, in a grotto in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, on Easter morning, uh, Christians often gather on the Mount of Olives for sunrise service. Uh, this is looking over toward Mount Nebo, towards the Jordan. And uh, so again, uh, a very special place to gather. So uh, Christians very much see themselves, uh, even though they're a very small minority, as continuing to be the presence of Christ, salt and light uh, in the Holy Land. And uh, some of you may have met Alex Awad, uh, he is a uh, Baptist, Palestinian Baptist pastor in East Jerusalem, also a dean at the Bethlehem Bible College. Uh, have you met Alex? Yeah. Uh, just a wonderful, charming uh, man and so much committed to peace uh, and so much committed to finding a way for Jews and Palestinians to share the land together. Uh, this is with uh, Peter Rempel, who used to be the MCC Manitoba. Uh, executive director. Uh, where we were living in Jordan, uh, there was a Palestinian pastor named uh, Reverend Samir, who was the headmaster at the Arab Episcopal School. And Christians um, in the Middle East, in predominantly Muslim societies, are 
are restricted in uh, being able to evangelize. Uh, they can evangelize other Christians, but it, uh, it, is, it is illegal for Muslims to convert to Christianity. Some do, uh, but they have to do it quietly or they face uh, severe restrictions. So Christians have, uh, have tried to find uh, their space in the society and how they can be uh, the light of Christ in as many ways as possible. And in this, uh, in this situation, uh, the Arab Episcopal School has tried to address an issue that, um, that is very prevalent in Arab culture, and that is that when a family has a, a member who has a disability, it is usually considered a shame on the family. And a typical response would be to hide that child at home, uh, to not let them out in public, and to not, uh, not shame the family because of this uh, of this disability. Well, the Christian community has been among the leaders in saying, uh, we don't really believe that's how it should be. And that children with disabilities uh, are gifted by God and they have things that uh, are contributions to our communities. And so uh, in Reverend Samir's school, they have uh, blind children and sighted children in the same classrooms together. Uh, and they're in each of the classrooms, there will be a teacher herself who is blind and a teacher who is sighted, and they work as a team. And they try to introduce the concept to the children from an early age that children who are blind, just because they have a disability, doesn't mean that they're stupid, that they, they learn very well, but they have a different way of learning. And so uh, the Palestinian Christians have been really at the forefront on an issue like that. Now, I talked about Kairos, Palestine. And this letter uh, is a very impassioned plea, uh, written in 2009, five years ago. Uh, one of the main things that the, the letter appeals for is for Christians to come and see, uh, to come and see the reality of Palestinian Christians on the ground. But it also raises a lot of questions about theology of Western Christians, and particularly uh, Western Christians who may embrace ideas of Christian Zionism. And, um, so the Palestinian uh, Kairos document says, do you realize how that theology plays out for us here in the region? And so that's what I want to talk about a little bit here. Um, and if that is a new term for you, I'll just kind of review uh, what some of the basic tenets of Christian Zionism are. Um, most people who embrace this theology would say that, that the creation of the state of Israel in 1948 fulfills Old Testament prophecy. So this is something that was predicted in the Bible and now it's happening, so it should be, it should be something that we um, celebrate. That the Jewish people have special favor with God, uh, the term, the apple of God's eye. That God will bless nations who bless the modern Jewish state or the state of Israel, and God will curse countries or nations that curse it. And that the, the end result of this is that we should not criticize the state of Israel no matter what actions they take because in criticizing them we are cursing and we uh, will bring judgment on ourselves. The Holy Land belongs to the Jews and that there will be at the end of time before Jesus comes back an ingathering um, of the Jews on the Holy Land and then the second coming will be after that. So, in the Kairos document, um, Christians, Palestinian Christians say, 
Here's how that theology is working for us. While evangelical Christians in the West maybe are afraid of criticizing the policies of Israel, meanwhile, there is a separation wall that's being built uh, that often will go right between our house and our farmland, or it will divide a Palestinian community. Uh, it will um, uh, keep us from getting to jobs or from getting to medical care, that there are Israeli settlements that are taking the land of Palestinians, uh, that there is daily humiliation at checkpoints, uh, that Palestinian homes are being demolished, and that there are now five million Palestinian refugees. And uh, this is, uh, this is uh, one shot of the wall. It's about 30 feet high. Uh, it is um, more than 430 miles long. Um, and it is a wall, a concrete wall, only in the urban areas. Uh, when you get into the more rural areas, it becomes a, a fence with all kinds of sensors and razor wires and uh, military roads on both sides that are patrolled. Um, to make sure no one crosses. Uh, but the, the real provocative thing about the wall is that it is, uh, between 80 and 90% of it is built on Palestinian land. So it's not built on the internationally recognized green line. It dips way into the West Bank and it takes uh, a lot of land. And as I said, it also often will divide um, one Palestinian neighborhood from another. Uh, this is a picture of of Bethany, where Mary and Martha and Lazarus are from. Uh, and uh, the wall there is, is dividing Palestinians from each other. It's not uh, dividing Israelis from Palestinians. So the wall uh, has a, a fairly arbitrary, what, or at least according to the Palestinian perspective, a fairly arbitrary uh, route. Alex Awad uh, was speaking at a convention in Florida two years ago, and he, he said in his remarks, there's a real injustice that's going on in Israel-Palestine today. Palestinian lands in the West Bank are stolen at a fast pace. On these lands, Jewish settlements are being built. In Bethlehem, for example, 70% of the farmland that belonged to Palestinian Christians has been confiscated in order to build Jewish settlements. And we uh, saw a very direct example of that this spring in May, uh, one of our graduates at Eastern Mennonite uh, is Bashara Nasser. He's from the Tent of Nations family that is just outside of Bethlehem. They woke up on the morning of uh, May 19 to find that 1,500 of their fruit trees had just been bulldozed uh, to make, and it was on their land, um, and it was to make space for a settlement. Uh, this is the, the checkpoint that I'm sure uh, Elizabeth has gone through many times, uh, leading from Bethlehem to go into to, uh, Jerusalem, which is about six miles away. And uh, there's a walking style for those that are pedestrians. And you often would hear stories of, uh, of Palestinian workers who, who had jobs in Jerusalem, spending maybe three hours getting through this checkpoint in the morning. So it's very difficult to plan your day when you don't know how long it will take to get to work. Uh, home demolition is, uh, is another reality for many Palestinians. And um, what happens is that Palestinians, when they need to uh, expand their, 
when a, when a son gets married, they usually build another level on the top of the house for the son and uh, spouse to live in. Uh, but the Israeli government controls the permitting system in much of the West Bank. And it's, it's very, very difficult to get permits. You can spend years and years applying and spending thousands of dollars, and they still are not usually granted. And so families will go ahead out of desperation needing the space and build, and then they will get a demolition order and be given the choice of demolishing the house themselves or of having the Israeli Defense Force demolish it and then have to, having to pay uh, the Israelis for doing the demolition. So it's a very difficult choice for a family, uh, and a lot, of, a lot of families live with this threat of having demolition orders on their houses. This is uh, a graphic that I find helpful in just explaining uh, the land uh, over the, the changes over the last uh, 65 to 70 years. The panel on the left is how the land looked in 1946. There was, the, the portion in green was uh, Palestinian-owned land, and in white was Israeli-owned uh, land, or Jewish-owned land. The second panel is the partition plan that was proposed by the UN as a way of, when it, was, when it became clear uh, to the international community that, that there should be a state of Israel because of uh, the Holocaust and the insecurity that Jews were feeling from that experience, um, the, the UN proposed a partition plan and they, um, they had this configuration that would have, I think was maybe roughly 58% uh, of the land for Israelis and 42% and for Palestinians. So the second um, map here, the green would have been the Palestinian state and the white would have been the Israeli state. And the Israeli, uh, the Jewish leaders accepted this plan. Uh, they didn't like it because they wanted more than that, but they decided to accept it for what uh, what, it was certainly more land than what was in the map on the left. Uh, but the Palestinian leaders rejected this plan because they thought it was a huge concession for them. Uh, so there was the war in 48 and 49, and then we ended up with, with this configuration. Uh, and uh, at that point in 48, uh, Jordan controlled the West Bank and Egypt controlled the Gaza Strip. Uh, and then after the war in 67, the Israeli government uh, occupied both the West Bank and Gaza. Now today, uh, what is left for Palestinian areas of control is uh, kind of a checkered West Bank that's separated by Israeli-controlled areas, and then the Gaza Strip that is, um, is controlled by Palestinians on one hand, but it has a fence around it and the, the access uh, to, to Gaza is totally controlled by the Israelis and the Egyptians. So from a Palestinian perspective, uh, the loss of land has been pretty dramatic in the last uh, 70 years. Uh, let's go back here. So what I found to be probably uh, one of the, the most challenging statements in the Kairos document is this one. Uh, we Palestinian Christians declare that the military occupation of our land is a sin against God and humanity. Any theology that legitimizes the occupation is far from Christian teachings, 
because true Christian theology is a theology of love and solidarity with the oppressed, a call to justice and equality among peoples. Now, as I've worked on this issue for more than 20 years now in the Washington office and then living in the region, one of the things that really stands out to me is this long Christian history of anti-Jewish theology uh, that really began in the first century as Christian leaders very much blamed the Jews uh, for crucifying Jesus. And, uh, and the, the rhetoric was very harsh. Uh, Origen, on account of their unbelief and other insults which they heaped upon Jesus, the Jews will not only suffer more than others in the judgment, he goes on to say they already are, and that's kind of how it should be. Uh, John Chrysostom, the Jews sacrifice their children to Satan. They are worse than wild beasts. It is the duty of all Christians to hate the Jews. Martin Luther, uh, this is not what you usually read from Luther, but this was his comment on the Jews. What then shall we do with this damned, rejected race of Jews? set fires to their synagogues or schools and bury and cover with dirt whatever will not burn so that no man will ever again see a stone or cinder of them. Second, I advise that their houses also be razed and destroyed. We ought to take revenge on the Jews and kill them. We are at fault for not slaying them. So this was the kind of thing that Christians would hear uh, in Sunday services, uh, which uh, you can imagine uh, how that kind of theology set the context for what Hitler was able to do uh, in the 40s. Uh, there was not a, a strong Christian voice against what Hitler was, was doing at all. And so when you go to Jerusalem, there is a Holocaust museum called Yad Vashem, and it tells this story of persecution of Jews throughout the centuries. And it very prominently displays, it actually begins with some of these Christian statements about the Jews. Uh, and that is, uh, that is very much etched in the memory of the Jewish people, that the Christian community was not their friend, uh, but actually uh, created a lot of hardship for them. And that this is why they needed a state for their own uh, protection. The, the interesting thing is when there was first talk of of having a, a, a Jewish state, uh, the locations that were considered were Argentina and Uganda. Uh, and then as the Zionist movement developed uh, in later uh, 1890s in Europe, it was decided that because of the historic connection to the Holy Land that that would be the better place to have it. But when you, when you go to the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem, the uh, it's very common to see the young uh, Israeli Defense Force recruits uh, going through this museum as part of their orientation. Uh, the mandatory service for, for young Israelis is, I think, three years for men and two for women. Uh, but all of them have to do military service, and all of them go through and learn this story very thoroughly to be reminded of the history and of why their service is needed for the defense of the Jewish people. Now, in spite of that, um, I found this quote to be really interesting from an early uh, leader of the World Jewish Congress, Nathan, Nahum Goldman. He said, if I were an Arab leader, I would never make terms with Israel. 
That is natural. We have taken their country. There has been anti-Semitism, the Nazis, Hitler, Auschwitz, but was that their fault? Was that the fault of the Palestinians? They only see one thing. We have come here and stolen their country. Why should they accept that? So here, and, and you find these increasingly as Israeli, as Israeli historians are, are writing more truthfully about what actually happened, you're finding more and more of these kind of statements that, that Jewish leaders realized uh, what they were doing, but there was this desperate need for security in a place, uh, and that was the cost they were willing to exact from them. So there are very much two trauma narratives at work uh, when you work in the Middle East, and I'm sure Elizabeth could tell you lots more about this. The Jewish narrative is one of centuries of persecution, uh, of being insecure, nobody looking after their well-being, and then a Holocaust in which more, some six million were killed. The Palestinian narrative is one of uh, dispossession and a real sense of injustice, uh, that more than 500 of their villages were taken and destroyed or uh, depopulated for the creation of the State of Israel, um, that there are now five million Palestinian refugees, refugees scattered around the world as a result of that uh, accident, of, of that uh, historical moment of, of creating the state of Israel. So there is this, uh, this sense of both peoples having uh, this sense of historical harms uh, that have never been adequately addressed. So coming back to the, the theology, uh, because Palestinian Christians really lean fairly heavily on us in the West saying, you know, your theology of Christian Zionism is part of what gives the cover for the state of Israel to do what it's doing. Because Christians in the West are, are actually supportive of the way the U.S. government is, is um, providing arms and uh, military support for Israelis. And so they've done a lot of work at thinking of, are there other ways of understanding what the Bible really says about the land and about who really is Israel. And um, one of the, the primary points is the notion that it's not Palestinians ultimately or Israelis or Jews who own the land, that God is the rightful owner of the land. This is a, a basic premise for all of us uh, in scripture that the earth is the Lord's. God is the ultimate owner of the land. It's a gift, not an entitlement. And that in the Old Testament, God's gift of land uh, is always linked to covenant responsibility. You read many times in the prophets these ideas that if you're faithful in the land, if you do what I command you, then you'll be blessed. But if you, if you don't, if you mistreat each other, if you mistreat the sojourner, then I'm going to spew you out and I'll vomit you out of this land. So there was always this, there was never this sense that this is yours to do with as you want, uh, but it was, it was a gift to be stewarded for a certain purpose. And along with that, the purpose uh, that God had in mind for Abram and Sarah was to be uh, the leaders of a people who would be a blessing to all nations. Uh, so as uh, Gary Burge of Wheaton College says, the promise of land is not designed to satisfy Israel's self-interest, but is God's strategy to bring God's goodness and righteousness to the rest of humanity. 
the land is not an end in itself, which should lead to a blessing to all the nations. And then uh, this is uh, who you work with, Mitri Rahab, uh, says it very beautifully this way. He's a Lutheran Palestinian pastor. The land happens to be the homeland of two peoples. Each of them should understand this land to be a gift of God, to be shared with the other. Peace and blessing on the land and on the two peoples will depend on this sharing. And only then will the biblical promises be fulfilled. So uh, just a couple of questions to ponder, and then let's, I'd like to hear your comments, your questions, uh, your challenges. So a very core part of our theology as Anabaptist people uh, has been this verse from John, for God so loved the world, the whole world, is what John talks about here. So does God really have favorites? Does God still have a chosen people? And if there is a chosen people still, what are the privileges and the responsibilities that come with that designation? It was very clear uh, the chosenness in the Old Testament carried with it the responsibility to be uh, a people in covenant re uh, relation with God, a people that were a blessing to the other nations. And then, who is really Israel? Is, it, is Israel really the, the modern state that goes by that name? Or does the New Testament lean and point in a different direction? Who really are the children of, Israel, of Abraham? Uh, Paul uh, talks about this a lot in the epistles, the, the notion that in Christ there's no longer Jew or Greek, no longer slave or free. Uh, all of you, if you, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abram's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So Paul tends to speak of the new Israel as, as both Jew and Gentile um, in relation to Christ. Again, uh, in Romans, for this reason it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all Abram's descendants, not only to the adherents to the law, the Jews, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham, for he is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. So I think one of the questions that I come away after working on this for 20 years is how do we contribute to God's plan of creating one new humanity? Rather than taking one side or the other of this conflict, uh, and, and usually if you take one side, it's pretty easy to try to demonize the other side. I want to close this with a story of uh, Etan Bronstein. Um, he's the man on the left of this picture. Um, and he is speaking to a learning tour from uh, MCC East Coast in this picture. Uh, standing at the site of biblical Emmaus. Um, this was a... Uh, a village that uh, in um, that the Israelis took uh, from Palestinian control, I think in 1967, and they leveled the village and built a park over it. It's called Canada Park uh, because it was built with resources from uh, Canadian Jews. Um, Etan is uh, an Israeli Jew. He is the founder of an organization called Zokrat. 
Uh, Zokrat is the Hebrew word for remembering. And uh, in his, uh, he's, a, he's a pacifist. Um, in his middle age, he came to the conclusion that there will not be security for Israelis until there is justice for Palestinians. And he very much came to believe that it is important to tell the truth about what happened to these Palestinian villages that were destroyed back in, in 1948, 49 for creating the state of Israel. And so his organization uh, goes around and uh, often will put up uh, the Arab names of those villages in the locations where they used to be. Uh, they will bring uh, refugees, Palestinian refugees, back to those villages to tell the current residents what it was like as an Arab village. Uh, they have developed a curriculum to be used in the Israeli school system that, um, that tells the history of what the Palestinians call the Nakba, or the catastrophe of their villages being taken. And so he, uh, he's committed to just uh, telling this history truthfully and finding some way to provide compensation for Palestinian families who, who lost their homes. Um, you can imagine that there are many parts of Israeli society who do not like the work that, that he's doing because their organization is changing. Uh, the typical Israeli narrative is that there was a land without a people, and miraculously, we were a people without a land, and this uh, was a perfect fit. And Etan and his organization say, well, it's not quite that simple. Uh, so he is, he is really one of the Israeli peacemakers uh, that's working very hard to get out an alternative message. And MCC has really tried to, to align itself with both Israeli and Palestinian peacemakers who are looking for ways uh, that the land can be shared together. Uh, and that uh, is what really gives me still a sense of hope when you, when you continue to hear about this conflict in the news as we have in the last month with the, the rockets and the bombing in Gaza, um, there are people on the ground who continue to be working for, for uh, a just and secure way for the people to share the land together. I will stop on that note. I should say there are some books here if you are interested, and I don't have the sign that says how much the preferred donation is for these books. Do you remember, is it 13 and 15 or? You can just make up a price, Susan. Okay. You can, if you take a book and would like to make a donation for the book, it's great. Uh, there's also some postcards. But um, I would really like to hear uh, from you, your comments, uh, things that you'd like to push back from the presentation or push out, uh, or questions. Um, this is, this is uh, intended to be a conversation. I have one sort of a tangential question. But I was wondering um, about if you know about how the Jewish population feels about the Zionist Christian idea that Jews will all gather back in Israel. It's a, that's a complicated question. What, so the question is how Jews feel about Christian Zionist theology. It is a, it's a mixed thing because on one hand, they have, they have really appreciated the support that comes from evangelical Christians. Uh, again, partly because of this long history um, of, 
of Christian anti-Semitism. So whenever you can find allies, you're grateful for them. But they are also smart enough to know that if you play that theology out, it results in either the Jews having to be converted to Christians or slaughtered. So it's not really uh, a very pretty picture for the Jews. It's more a means to the end for Christians who see it as a... So, so it's mixed. I mean, they, they kind of accept the support because they look for support wherever they can find it. But they realize that theology is not uh, as positive as it might sound at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, I think our... Okay, so everything I'm about to say is purely speculative. And I think that we're not very self-aware. We, American Christians, are very self-aware about really how we feel about what's happening in the Middle East, certainly how we, even how we feel about Jews in Israel. Um, and if we can use, you know, who we allow to be president as a witness test, how we really feel about people. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that we probably uh, still are um, prejudiced against Jews in this country, mm-hmm. in general, because I can imagine, well, I don't have to imagine a black president anymore, you know, or I can imagine other presidents of color. Mm-hmm. I could probably imagine a female president before I could imagine a nation voting a Jewish person in mm-hmm. the presidency. And so our alliances with Israel aren't alliances as if we have no prejudice against Jews, as if we're not on some level anti-Semitic. I think that we do carry some anti-Semitism in our culture. Mm-hmm. That we don't identify when we say, well, we're going to stand with Israel, you know, because this is their homeland and we're with God and we're there with God, you know, the whole, what you just explained, the national mm-hmm. Zionism. That we're just, we are not self-aware, truly, about how we feel and what our position is with Israel and the Israeli state and Jews in general. There's a lot of disconnect. Yeah. And I I think there is a lot of work that needs to be done uh, at a local level and a national level to to push that out uh, with Christian congregations having conversation with Jewish synagogues and and acknowledging this painful history and uh, repenting of it, really. It's, yeah, the, the religious portion of Jews is maybe 10, 15%. It's not very large, so a lot of them are secular, but I think they are bound together by the sense that a state is necessary for our protection, and whether it's cultural Jewishness or religious. Yeah. Let's start over here, and then we'll come. You mentioned the presence of Egypt in where, Gaza? Right, that Egypt is on the southern border of Gaza. Well, it's, it's been mixed. Um, the, the current uh, government of Egypt is, is not very favorable towards, towards Gaza. Uh, they're not, not very well attuned to, to Hamas and uh, see it as, as somewhat of a threat. So they, they have been interested in, as have the Israelis, in cutting off the, the tunnels that have been kind of a lifeline into into Gaza. There are, on the other hand, there are a lot of 
of analysts who, who would push for a solution to this problem of Gaza being part, becoming part of Egypt and the West Bank becoming part of Jordan, and then that would be the way to, to solve the problem. That's not uh, a solution that Palestinians are generally in favor of. Uh, let's come over here, and then we'll come back to you. Yeah, I was just going to say there are some rather sizable, complicating dots that still need to be connected to the bigger picture, um, such as um, with the creation of the state of Israel, there was this massive uh, cohort of displaced Palestinians that got dispersed and neighboring Arab nations that were resistant to receiving them, which laid foundation for a whole terrorist kind of, um, network. Uh, which, so there's that one. And then added to that is the whole Islamic world and Arab world. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so that, of necessity, intensifies all of the pressures and makes it a lot more than just between the Palestinians and the Jews. Um, because Israel is, bar not, the most militarized state on the face of the earth. And bar none, the U.S. is the chief provider right. that makes that reality. So you throw all those things in, and that's what helps to show the epic scale of all of the issues that are coalescing. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. In Jordan, where we lived, uh, more than half of the population is Palestinian. And this became quite, this became the issue in how the Arab Spring played out in Jordan, because that Palestinian population, some of who are now Jordanian citizens, was pushing for much greater representation in the, the Jordanian parliament. The, the Jordanian parliament has been controlled by the Bedouin tribes, the real Jordanians, even though they're the minority. Uh, and uh, the Palestinians were saying, look, this needs to be one person, one vote. Uh, and so that dynamic got really ugly during the, during the Arab Spring. Um, and Syria, Lebanon, both have hundreds of thousands of, of Palestinian refugees, and it does put a economic pressure on, on those countries. So it's complex, and, and I mean, part of what was driving what just happened in the last month uh, between Gaza and, and Israel, um, many of the residents of Gaza are refugees from the 49 uh, creation, or the 48th creation of the state of Israel, and they're living in Gaza, and they feel like they're in a prison. Uh, Gaza can't import, can't export, can't really develop an economy. And so a portion of the population, uh, out of a sense of desperation and sense of great injustice, say, I can't feed my family. I'm going to do something about this. And what gets attention is firing rockets. Well, that's a very stupid strategy. Uh, and it feeds right into the Israeli sense of being vulnerable uh, when you're having rockets fired at you. 
but for the Palestinians, it's like I can't feed my family, I'll die with dignity. Uh, and that's, a, that's part of this cycle that is just really unhelpful. Here and then in the back. I noticed that in your presentation to us, you presented to us the Christians that are in Israel. Now, the proportion of Christians, that 1.6 or whatever? 1.9. 1.9. That is the whole area, including the, the Gaza Strip. 1.9 is the portion from uh, counting the West Bank and Gaza. There are also Christians in the state of Israel because there's a portion of Palestinians, uh, there, are, there are Messianic Christians who are Jewish, and then there are Palestinian Christians who live within the state of Israel. So, but this, this trying to get the Christians together to talk, this is not, this is not reaching out to non-Christians in the Arab or the Israeli communities. What, what is not reaching out to? Well, this attempt to bring people together. Uh, yeah. yeah, no, there, there, are, there are attempts among uh, Palestinian Christians and Messianic Jews to get together. It's very difficult to cross the various borders because there's restrictions on who can travel where. Uh, but I should also say that, that by and large, um, and Elizabeth can, can correct me if I'm wrong, but by and large, the, the relations between Palestinian Christians and Palestinian Muslims is, is pretty positive. They share many of the same political views about what this occupation is doing. Uh, and if you poll Palestinian Christians why they're leaving, it's not because they're being persecuted by Muslims, it's because they're, they're finding the hardships of the occupation. Uh, that's the, the polling data vastly supports that view of why they're leaving. There seems to be more fear coming as what we call ISIS, they call Daesh. Um, they're afraid that that's starting to happen in the West Bank. So as I was going to the churches, that would be in the sermons, that kind of fear. But yeah, I would agree with you, like Muslim-Christian relations, I mean, they're friends with each other, they're neighbors. There's underlying stuff, you know, you might hear, well, they're Muslim more, you know? Right. But as far as practically how it's played out, they seem to get along fine. Right. I think it's very interesting that the, uh, the message from Palestinian Christians to the Western Church. Um, one of the challenges, I think, is because of the United States, at least, the uh, religion and politics are so coming that uh, I don't think that Americans have enough information to uh, make an informed decision. And sometimes if their informed decision falls toward the Palestinian side, um, the roof comes in and falls down upon them. Uh, and I think in our country, at least very quick, if you don't support the state of Israel and all of its actions are somehow anti-Semitic. This played out once before, though, also, because uh, in the 1980s, in Central America, in Nicaragua, El Salvador, um, the Contra War, which the United States funded, um, 
was an American Baptist mission field. And the, uh, the Protestants in those countries sent letters to the national denominations, to the churches, to anybody who would listen about the, uh, the slaughter that was occurring in the name of United States, and that their own congregants were being killed in the process. Mm -hmm. But there's so much cognitive dissonance between what we're told and what we want to believe, and what is in fact the facts on the ground, mm -hmm. that um, I think it's very hard to get through that filter mm -hmm. uh, of information. I think if we had more exposure to what is actually going on, mm -hmm. uh, people might be willing to look more realistically at the situation, not by the simplistic solutions that, you know, we have to support 100% what they do, and gee, tough luck about all those people, we got blown up. We don't see them, and the news is filtered, so it's like, okay, well, it's 2,000 people. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I'm wondering if you can talk a little about this for me. Um, I, I understand, you know, I can assimilate all the statistics and I get the injustice part and, you know, that's easy for me to understand. But I happen to have a number of Jewish friends mm -hmm. and um, did some Holocaust studies and a lot of course they have this well. And you, you mentioned a phrase that I thought was great when you talked about the traumas. Mm -hmm. That really kind of triggered a nerve for me. The trauma nerve. Trauma, trauma yeah. narratives on both sides. Um, because, you know, a couple of these people I'm very, very close to, and when they talk about this trauma, it is generational and, I mean, it is deep. And... I am left kind of speechless with that because I'm looking at this this group of people who identify as a group regardless of whether they're really they have this identification. And nobody wants them. There's nowhere seemingly nowhere for them to become information. And do we just say, well let's just stop. I mean that's just how that played out. Um, that's where I get hung up because I have sympathy for both right. parties and I have no idea how to think about that. And, you know, knowing that generations were just wiped out, any future was wiped out, and they all have families that were wiped out, I, I just, it's like I almost, it's like a third rail that I just don't want to touch, mm -hmm. you know. And so I'm wondering if you can talk. Well, I was just going to say, if you, if you can come up with a way to deal with the collective trauma, <laughs> you will be a multi-billionaire. Yeah. Right? Yeah. How do how do you deal with historic trauma that's collective like that? Yeah, we're talking, and, and, and you know, we have two sides. And yeah. that's the other thing. You talk about anti-Semitism for thousands of years for Christians. Right. Absolutely. But they've also got it coming from Muslims still spewing this incredible hatred mm -hmm. every day. I mean, they can point to stuff they've seen in the, mm -hmm. you know, written now 
that is just hideous. And so right. now they're kind of sandwiched in between and surrounded by these people who, you know, I don't even know if anti-Semitic is the accurate phrase. Mm -hmm. So I, I know that if I was Jewish, I would be in constant fear mm -hmm. of being hated by just about everybody, you know. And, and to be clear, those things are said. It is not a majority of Palestinians that would take that position, but no, but there's some really awful, right, I mean, like, from other yeah, Arab countries too, right. Um, no, I I think I mean I, I don't. Do you get any Do you get any insights from your conversations with Jewish friends about what they what would help to move towards healing? Well, it's interesting because one one of them skews conservative. And uh, I think she lives in fear. Right. And so her answer is conservative. The other one wants to be liberal with it. She is liberal with it. And so she really skews that way. But at the base of everything, it's almost like the bed of her humor and everything is anti semitic Right. I mean, it's just such a reality for both of them, but their responses have been different. This one would like to see peace and solution, this one is not interested in that at all. So, you know, I've kind of got, and I've had, you know, lengthy conversations with both because I, I'm trying to find how to think about right. it, you know. Right. Now, I've, I've thought about this a lot, and I, I mean, I, any solution can seem simplistic, but I do think with regard to the Jewish side of this, there need to be more um, both statements from Christian bodies, denominational bodies, acknowledging the harm that was done and repenting of this history and being very public about that. Um, because I think just acknowledging it and saying, speaking it truthfully is an important thing to happen. And, and as far as our government, um, I mean, I think it is appropriate to say that that we are ready to be allies of a of a nation of Israel, but that there have to be some parameters and boundaries on that. That that expanding into the West Bank and Gaza, I mean, there have to be space for Palestinians too, um, so that we will not let another Holocaust happen to you as Jewish people. We will stand with you, um, but there have to be there have to be some some parameters on, on your expansionism into to other parts of the Middle East. On the Palestinian side, I think, I think the number one thing that Palestinians want is an acknowledgement that their land was taken. And under international law, there is this idea that refugees have the right of return. For most Palestinians, I don't think that means we actually want to go back to our original village. It means we want that right acknowledged and to be compensated for what was taken from us. And so it would seem to me that the international community that, that bears a lot of responsibility for the Holocaust and the conditions that created it should be able to pony up the money to provide compensation and really, really put together the resources to make a viable Palestinian state uh, that has land and, and a good economy for the if we don't 
recognize those historic harms and do something about them, we're going to see what played out in Gaza last month. We're going to see that every couple of years. It's just going to build up, and then there'll be an explosion, and then it'll be, it'll get put down. And so until you address the roots, I mean, I think we know that, but it seems like finding the political will to do it uh, is a difficult thing. Well, I was just going to say, like, sitting in a room with um, Palestinian teenagers this summer uh, and just talking, we start by just talking, figuring out what type of theater we want to make. And something that really impressed me is the, the occupation came up as <laughs> that's their reality. And, you know, one teener, teenager was just like, no, Israelis are all bad. There's no good ones. And I try to stay out as much as I can and let them talk and then kind of intervene since I'm not Palestinian, but um, then others were questioning that. And then what they all came to the conclusion of, which I thought was really powerful, was that at least the kids, or, or even the parents of the kids in Israel, had no part in what happened in uh, 1948. And so they were born, just like they were, into this situation. And they shouldn't also have to be taken off their land, because they were also born into this land. And so I thought it was really beautiful how they all were agreed on that, every single one of them, even ones that had a very fearful view of all Israelis. Um, so that was really positive, that they were thinking like that. Um, and then there's programs, uh, one is called Musalaha, which is where they take Palestinian youth and Jewish youth and put them together in camps uh, and just get to know each other and spend time together. And... Um, some people can call that normalization, where you don't want them to see the occupation as normal and therefore uh, justice without peace. How is that possible? But at the same time, if more of them can just be excited and, and, and to know that there are Israelis that are really good. I mean, there's, I think the hope for me in that situation is all the Israeli organizations that are uh, saying we are against the occupation. We're not against being in Israel. We're not. We're not going to leave, but we are against the occupation. And so the occupation ending for me, now, <laughs> it's not simple because there's a lot of hatred um, on both sides uh, from a lot of people, key people, uh, but there's also a lot of willingness. Um, but unfortunately, as we see in general, willingness is usually from people uh, without weapons, without, you know, and so the ones with those, you know, get the power. But that was just a positive. There's something in the back here. Just some of the history of the anti-Semitism in Europe. Uh, but I think it was during the Middle Ages, the king, it was a Christian nation, and so they had anti-usury laws. Usury? So Christians can't charge each other interest. So what the king said, okay, why don't you choose to be the bankers? You can charge interest. And the king was profiting off the interest. And so that's, I think, some of the history of the anti-Semitism. Is those are the, mm -hmm. the bankers charging us usually excessive mm -hmm. interest rates, uh, and they're being abused by the king. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that's some of the roots of the anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. These are the guys that are taking all of our money. Yeah. The loan shark. Mm -hmm. That would certainly have contributed to the feeling. I think it was predated that by quite a bit. The, the Jews were targeted during the the Crusades as well as Muslims and. Um, were given choices. I mean, honestly, what Christians were doing in the Crusades was very much like what ISIS is doing. They were given the choice, you convert uh, our way of thinking about it or goodbye. Uh, it's, a, it's just a really amazing way to think about religious freedom. I mean, 
Christians living in Palestine would give up choice of people. Yeah. 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 I, I have a sort of a continuation. My question was really about what MCC is doing there, and and you were talking about that too. What you shared when the young people are, get together. Are these all Christian young people, or are um, they? I don't. I don't think no. it matters. It doesn't matter. They don't. Right. It isn't. It's just getting, yeah, just getting whoever done. you know, whoever the parents you know want their kids to be a part of that kind of uh -huh. thing, and they I think you know they probably don't charge or anything because they want them to be able to. Be able to You're saying that MCC is no, I don't think that's MCC. MCC MCC has partners that are Christian. They have partners that are Muslim. They have partners that are mixed. Uh, partners that are Israeli Jewish. Uh, so MCC has tried to work with all the the different groups there. I, I, I think it would be fair to say that in the last 10 years, um, because across the Middle East there is a deep concern about the number of Christians that are leaving, MCC has really tried to make connection with Christian partners a high priority in its Middle East work uh, because there is this, this real sense of, of uh, exodus. Yes. So I actually have asked about that. You said previously that the number of Christians in the area is over 30%, and now you're looking at 1.9. And is that primarily due to, um, you know, the exodus, or is it primarily, you know, they're choosing to Islam or both? Right. I mean, I assume it's some of both, but. Um, it, the reason that Christians are leaving varies from country to country. In, in, in the West Bank, uh, it is primarily because of the hardship of occupation. Um, yeah. it's, it's that it's that it primarily attributed from not not converting. Yeah, no. the The conversion would would only happen if a um, in intermarriage situations where the law would require the the conversion. Um, but now in in Iraq, uh, very much the rationale for leaving uh, Christians do feel like they are being targeted by by Islamic groups, uh, and it's been very dramatic in Iraq that since the 2003 war, um, almost two thirds of the Christian community has left. And the ones that have stayed in Iraq have moved to the north, to the Kurdish area, and even there now, if you're following the news in recent weeks, uh, it's become a very difficult situation. So yeah, the reasons vary from country to country, but they, um, there's a real consensus among Christian leaders that this is, this is a very um, sobering time for us, that we're we, we can imagine a day when there won't be a Christian presence here if we don't find a way to stop this flow. The, the, among Christians, generally I would say that MCC is received uh, favorably uh, because there's been a long-term presence there. It's been very much relationship-oriented. Uh, there has been an attempt to be respectful of the different uh, people groups in the region. 
there would certainly be, be um, Israelis who feel like MCC uh, has maybe been too involved with Palestinian and addressing the issues of the occupation and trying to speak from a justice orientation. Uh, so you would, you would hear among some, some Israelis. But in general, I think uh, MCC has been really well received in the, throughout the region um, among the, the different Muslim, Christian, uh, Jewish groups. And, and the, the Jewish partners that MCC has are, are really appreciative of the support because in Israeli society, they're not always well received. I mean, they're doing some very courageous work. Uh, peacemakers are always kind of in the middle and they're not necessarily trusted by either side. And so uh, I think that's been a significant role for MCC to walk with the Israeli organizations that are trying to be peace builders. There was a comment back here. The U.S. and its support of Israel on the Palestinian side, I know Jordan and some of the other countries in the region are, are financially bad. We know they got the mosque and such, and the rock are Can you speak to whether there are other countries? other superpowers that might be on that side? On the side of? Yeah. I mean, the United States, we always seem to stick our nose into something that may or may not be our business. That went all the way back to the car ride. Is it, a, is it, a, it, is, is it a, a region that's being fought out by superpowers in the United States? Yeah. With, with Israel and China or Russia with Gaza? Um, yes. Yeah, more and more that's the case. Uh, I should say that 40% um, of the U.S. foreign assistant, assistance budget goes to Israel and Egypt. And 40% of the total foreign assistance budget goes to those two countries. And it was because those two were the first to make peace under the Carter administration, and that was what the U.S. promised for the risk that they took for peace, that we will support you. Uh, and so Israel is getting $3 billion a year in military aid. Egypt still gets like $2 billion a year. So the, the foreign assistance budget is only like 1% of our total budget, but it's $20-some billion. It's not small change, and those two countries get the 40% of it. Um, and so when, when Israel does these actions on the Gaza Strip, it's with US weapons. And that's, what is, that's why Palestinians have some feelings against American policy. Uh, I visited after the 2009 war in, in Gaza, Cindy and I went in and uh, we saw uh, the American International School in Gaza, which is an elite school, would have been training the young people that would be most likely to be pro-Western in their orientation. Uh, it was built with U.S. taxpayer money and it was destroyed with an F-16 that the U.S. gave Israelis because apparently a rocket had been fired from the playground of that school and so it was demolished. But yeah, there's, there, 
when, when, is, when Palestinians go through these checkpoints, the soldiers are wearing guns that have made in the US on them. So there's a very direct connection. But to your larger question, the Middle East has very much become a, a geopolitical area where the powers are fighting for their own interests. And Syria is probably the most prevalent example right now. You have Iran investing in it, you have Russia. Russia is interested because they have a Navy base on the sea in Syria. The US is putting money in there. Uh, the Saudis are putting money in. They all have their interests. And uh, one, one uh, piece I read said there are, are as many as 4,000 different splinter groups fighting in Syria now, all supported by these different. And, and if you read, like the economist said, did this analysis of how civil wars come to an end, and they, they, the most predictable way of knowing when it's going to end is when the outside power stop funding all of these. Uh, so yeah, that's playing out across the region. You have more and more of the Gulf countries. They have lots of money. They're putting it in because they have certain strategic interests. Uh, so it's, and the, the ordinary people are the ones that pay the price. It is a very hot bed of politics, yeah. They, there are just a lot of interest. I mean, the U.S. got involved and became such a strong ally of Israel uh, during the Cold War, and they, it was as a counterbalance to the influence that Russia, the Soviet Union, had with, with Egypt and, and Syria. And so Israel was seen as a strategic ally. We needed a, a good ally there because we have, we have economic interests in the region. Uh, and we wanted to be able to be sure to protect those interests. And uh, that's, I mean, unfortunately, that's the way nations seem to operate. Uh, we have strategic and national security interests, and that's what guides our policy. And I, I think it's a reminder that the church should not operate that way, and that's why we uh, have something different to bring to the table. My colleague is going to correct everything I just said. Roundabout way to get to hope, but you look at these situations and just think, oh, there's just there's just nothing to do. They're so terrible, and and so when you look at something and you pull it apart and you see that outside interests and outside money always precede the sort of messy conflict, there is something to do there. There is there are there is possibility to change um, when you see the the roots and the patterns of conflict. It's not just this inevitable thing that has to happen and there's something we can do about it. There, mm -hmm. there is hope that we could stop stop doing the things that make conflict messier and worse for the people living in it. Mm -hmm. We can't necessarily solve all of the underlying trauma issues for the church, but we can we get to stop making it worse. Right. And I and I would come back to where we started this evening and that is a very deeply felt call from Palestinian Christians that at least in the body of Christ, please don't contribute to our suffering by having a theology that, that gives cover for anything that the state of Israel wants to do. Um, so yeah, we can't solve everything, but there are things that we, we can do as Christians to show solidarity and show our concern for, for justice and peace for all peoples. I was gonna to say to that Kairos document, is online, I believe, and and I have a copy of it. So okay. If people to, but, yeah. So if anyone's interested. Yeah. 
Julie. You mentioned uh, having a theology, um, and I um, have recently had the privilege of sitting on an Old Testament scholar who talked about um, the theology of, of David and Solomon and nation building and the um, justification of violence and war in order to protect and build your nation is is what undergirds um, Zionist theology and Israel's theology of using military might, at least in part mm -hmm. that does. Um, but he also referred to um, a theology of the patriarch Abraham um, in Genesis 20 and 22, I think working with Abimelech, who was at that time the native in the land, and Abraham was the sojourner. And it was a theology of um, living at peace with the people who are different from you within the same land that you share. And um, I just wonder if, if there's any chance of Swinging that Davidic monarchic kind of theology over to, well, these were actually your roots. Abraham is your deepest root, and it's the root of, of a lot of the people in the Middle East, whether they're Jewish or, or other. Um, I wonder if you comment on that, and if, yeah. if anybody's talking about that. Oh, that's a good, but I, I think. Uh, one of the things that that I have sometimes shared with people who who still want to embrace more of the Christian Zionist message that that we have to be very supportive of the state of Israel is that when you look at that tradition of Abraham uh, and the prophetic tradition in the Old Testament, there was always the concern for the sojourner and the alien in the land. And there was never a carte blanche to just do whatever you want. And so even if you, even if you would take the position that the ingathering of the Jews and the creation of the modern state of Israel is something that God is wanting to bring about, it, it doesn't seem to me that you would have to take the position that it has to be at the expense of all the Palestinian people, that there could be a way of sharing this land um, and and caring for, as you said, uh, that, that always seemed to be the, the vision that, that was there from, from uh, Genesis 12 on, that this, uh, that this was to be uh, a, a light to the nations, uh, a model behavior of how you treat human beings. Consistent with the whole covenant. Yeah. God. Right. Not because I chose you, but because I chose you to be stewards of my character to the world. Right, right. Um, so yeah, no, I, I think that's, that's really a very core concept. It's, 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 hard, it's hard to find a lot of discussion about that right now. We do really get into the nation building ideas. As, that's, how, that's how, but you know, I also find it very interesting that that there are conservative Jews in Israel who, who would be very Zionist in their orientation, but 
but do not see the current state of Israel as the Zionist entity that God is going to create. They, they believe when it happens, it will not be by human military might, but by an act of God. And so they would not see the current state as the, as the standard of what God is going to do. Yes? So my question always kind of comes down to, so how then shall we live? How then Are shall we, we live? We as middle class Americans in this little town, this little area. Pardon? That was my question. Please write that down. Go. Before Daryl jumps into that answer, I think it might be helpful to rehearse the ways we're already answering the question. And I think as a congregation, we at least implicitly, if not explicitly, rejected a kind of Christian Zionist theology. We don't go there. Uh, we spent a whole summer on Abraham and never once framed it as promised land theology. Uh, so I, I, I think we, we, we have proclivities towards an even-handed approach to justice in, in the Middle East. We have uh, folks in our congregation who spend summers there <laughs> and build relationships uh, and uh, maybe we need to do a bit more as a congregation to uh, make uh, Elizabeth's travels uh, part of our mission mm -hmm. uh, and, and support that, not just find out doing another fundraiser for me, <laughs> but, but to own her work as I um, I think it becomes another way. Um, you know, we have we have Keith and Ron in the congregation who who have deep experience of this reality and can, can be teachers and guides in our midst. The other half of my life has called me to go to Israel, Palestine, and October. So, so there's, there are a number of us who are beginning to build connections, relationships, engagements. Uh, I, I think the other the, the, the other question is, as we as we engage in those, how do we begin to, to extend hospitality and, and say to folks that we encounter in those places, uh, there is a little congregation in in the middle of Riverside, California, who who wants to stand with you. Uh, and we we need to figure out how to do that and how to do that well. So I, I just want to rehearse all the ways that we're already engaged before, before we get the real answer. No, I, that's a very good. Uh, you said the postcards? I would, no, I was going to mention that. There, these are, if you want to send to your member of Congress a message that calls for uh, a solution that, that works for the well-being. Both peoples. Very simple message. Um, Mark Takano uh, and I met, our congressman and I met Friday night. He would like to come here and meet us. Right? Uh, uh, I think it might be interesting if we prepared to have a conversation with him about how does he carry this 
step back to the halls of power. How do we organize as a congregation to have that kind of conversation with our member of Congress who would like very much to come sit with us? That's a real opportunity. Uh, when I was on Capitol Hill, um, many offices said we don't hear any we don't hear any balanced message on this topic. Uh, we hear from the Israeli lobby, but nothing from uh, no balanced. Yeah, we, they they never hear a side of the message that brings the Palestinian voice as well as the the Israeli voice, and because there is a very strong Israeli lobby. Uh, if you want to read a, a sobering book uh, by two academics, Mearsheimer and uh, Wilt, uh, one from Harvard, one from the University of Chicago. It's called The Israeli Lobby. And they make, one of them is, at least one of them is Jewish, if not both. They make the argument that the Israeli lobby's influence is so strong uh, on, on foreign policy in the Middle East that it's, uh, that it's to the point of we're not even acting in our own national interest at this point. But, but uh, what you're saying, Jeff, is, is a real opportunity. And there were many members of Congress that we talked with that said, we would like to vote the right way on this, but we're not hearing that from, from our constituency. And what we are hearing is the, is the voice of the Israeli lobby, and that's how we're, we're going to vote. So take that opportunity. That's, that's perfect. Um, I do think. Um, I do think in terms of other practical things, uh, I know you've had some engagement and there was even a conversation whether there would be uh, Jewish presence here tonight. Um, but keep that conversation going and um, there's, there's a historic harm there to, to repair. Uh, another one I, I heard someone say over dinner tonight that uh, Riverside is getting very much into the green energy. Um, 90% of the mischief that our country has caused in the Middle East has been over oil uh, dependency. And um, I honestly, one of the ways that we can extract ourselves from a lot of that trouble is by living more eco-friendly here in this country. Uh, that, that, was the num that was probably the number one takeaway from my six years in the Middle East is that we have got to be less dependent on oil from that region and all the, all the compromises we make in the Middle East to get that oil uh, are costing us dearly. Um, and if you, if you, costing them dearly too. But if, if you want to read another interesting uh, book in terms of practical things, uh, it's called Imperial Hubris. Uh, it was written by the CIA analyst who followed all the speeches of bin Laden uh, and what he was angry about. And um, it has a lot to do with the way that we're extracting oil at the cost of, he sees it as a resource that should be supporting poor Muslim communities and we're getting it uh, at cheaper than we should be prices. Um, he also talked about the Israel-Palestine situation and the and uh, the uncritical support that the U.S. gives uh, to Israel. So yeah, meet with your congressperson, meet uh, with the Jewish community, um, send postcards to your member of Congress. Uh, if, you can have, if you can have someone like Alex Awad come here, 
uh, or other Palestinian Christian speakers, by all means take advantage of that. Uh, it would be a real gift to you and it would be an encouragement to them. You know, fighting injustice anywhere is fighting injustice everywhere. And the idea that we stand in solidarity, um, we come to the aid of the poor and disenfranchised and marginalized. We set up bike clinics all around the city, John, to uh, help those who are marginalized and disenfranchised. And it keeps open a space in our hearts that is the place that animates our work in Palestine. Mm -hmm. Israel, I mean, it's yeah. that same it's all thing, and whether we're doing that or, you know, helping children and you're invited or making art projects, Casablanca, or, you know, all the kinds of things that, that this community at Madison Street is, is moving out of that space is, mm -hmm. is part of this work. It's exactly. It's all connected. Yeah, yeah I would add to that. So many of us are teachers, and we can be talking about peacemaking and just opening eyes to these situations. Mm -hmm. so that's a role that we have. You also might get Yeah, it's fun. Uh, I was going to say, too, like we have refugees in our midst, and that's just something mm -hmm. I'm getting bold in recently, trying to. And even at the Dia de los Artes Fair, I heard a woman speaking Arabic, and she's from Morocco, and she was like the nicest person ever, and gave me her phone number. And it gave me even the boldness. And all I did was say, oh, you're speaking Arabic. Like, I'm learning Arabic. Or you could say something else. Um, but it was just like, as I'm trying to get bolder, because I don't typically have that way about me, to be honest. But um, it's just like, kind of cool and it's also a great way to share your faith. Um, I'm realizing just that connection helps me to share more about my faith and who I am and, and, and you know, inviting them to a community that thinks they're really cool and doesn't judge them for being in the Middle East um, is huge for them and I don't know, that's just been kind of a way of when I'm not getting to be there that I feel I'm doing something. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, the last thing I would add is uh, hold your pastor accountable to espousing good theology from the pulpit. Um, I, I spent my early adult years. Wait, that's a real problem. Well, I know. Kool-Aid's in the back. <laughs> I spent my early adult years uh, practicing law in Mississippi. And uh, it was very clear that the Ku Klux Klan in this country operated with a sense that um, they were doing God's will by promoting white superiority. Um, it's a perverted theology, but that's how they read it. And anti-Semitism is a perverted theology. I would say Christian Zionism is a perversion of the theology that God loves the world, that God loves all peoples. And whenever we are preaching from our pulpit that some people are less than human or less than deserving of God's love and concern, that's a problem. And it creates the space for us to treat people as less than human. Um, so I know that Jeff doesn't do that, but if he does, call him on it. You've been a great group. I'm happy to hang around and talk for a while. I, it sounds like you're doing some really good stuff. Um, 
And thank you for giving the space to share a bit of the voice from the Palestinian Christian community. It means a lot to, to them to know that people are gathering and hearing their concerns. Um, and uh, this gets back to them that, that these conversations are happening. Um, so thank you.